you are a military officer and you're an attorney. And those two responsibilities, those two hats are just, they're different by their very nature. It's not to say that they're inconsistent with one another, but Mm -hmm. the skills required to be a good officer are not the same skills required to be a good attorney. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to episode 11. In today's episode, I interview Lieutenant Joshua Fiveson, who serves in the Navy Judge Advocates General Corps as senior appellate counsel. In addition to his military service, Josh served as a law clerk to Chief Justice Nathan Hecht of the Texas State Supreme Court and Judge Kevin Olson on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Josh will soon return to Texas to clerk for Judge Don Willett on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Josh is a graduate of George Mason University, Go Patriots, and Harvard Law School, Go Crimson. Despite being a relatively recent graduate, Josh has already had an impressive career. Just this year, he's argued three times before the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, the highest court in the military, and was the 2020 recipient of the Navy's Outstanding Young Military Lawyer Award. In our conversation, we discussed what makes the career of a military lawyer unique, the keys to applying for clerkships and how to succeed once you get there, and the challenges of working hard while also remembering to treasure each day, not only as legal professionals, but as people too. After a brief disclaimer, we began our conversation by discussing what inspired Josh to become a military lawyer. Here he is. Before I begin, I've got to do the most lawyerly thing possible, which is offer a quick disclaimer. Obviously, I'm thrilled to be here, but in my personal capacity, so nothing I say should be attributed as the official position of the United States, the Department of the Navy, or really anyone important. Everything I say today is just me. So can you start by talking a little bit about why you decided to become a military lawyer? So huge Tom Cruise fan. And when I found out that I had to take math in order to model my life on Top Gun, I decided I'd go with a few good men. <laughs> Jokes aside, I have always wanted to serve. And I realized service takes countless forms. You don't have to wear a uniform to serve. But personally, I'd always wanted to spend some time in the military. And I also, perhaps counterintuitively, had a a predilection for questioning authority, which is maybe not the best mix in retrospect, but things have worked out all right. I'm incredibly blessed. But you know, the, the questioning authority aspect is what got me interested in the law specifically. I have always tried to put myself in new and perhaps adventurous situations. And when deciding where I would like to be a lawyer and where I could exercise that desire to serve, Uh, There are a few other places where you get to practice floating around on an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. There are a few other practice areas where I get to file briefs one year and the year prior, I'm liaising with foreign militaries that, you know, we're providing support for while coordinating with the State Department. It's just a place where the breadth of practice is refreshing, exciting, and that all really spoke Mm -hmm. to me. Well, again, at the same time, getting to fulfill my genuine desire to serve the nation. And can you tell me a little bit about the roles you've played? It feels like a lifetime, but I've only been on active duty for about four years now. I've provided counsel to commanding officers of of warships while I was in San Diego. I have done general legal assistance, helping service members, retirees, dependents, 
for countless things, whether they're wills or assisting with housing issues. I've also served as a criminal defense counsel for service members, courts martial, where, where what was on the table, my clients were facing up to life. I mean, these were not light charges. And I also currently serve as one of three senior appellate counsel for the Navy and Marine Corps. We're a joint uh, command, one team, one fight. And uh, we handle all of the appellate work for the United States Navy and the Marine Corps. Everything is, is our shop. And we also advise on complex criminal uh, courts martial worldwide for Navy and Marine Corps. So we're working in all the time zones on complicated issues that come up that obviously the United States may have an appellate interest in. So that's what I've done over the course of the last four years. And it's, it's been exciting. That sounds like a whole lifetime's career of being a lawyer in four years. And do you rotate between these things or are you assigned on a project by project basis? So it's a little bit of both, at least in the JAG Corps, you're expected to kind of sample. You're expected to rotate through kind of core competencies. That is your command services, which is what I was referencing, where you're advising local commands. Your legal assistance, where it's general, again, landlord-tenant matters, divorce, wills, things of that nature. Then a trial billet, so either uh, as a trial counsel prosecuting cases or as a defense counsel on the defense side. And I thankfully uh, ended up on the defense side. Though I will say, in law school, I never thought I wanted to be a defense counsel. In fact, far from it. Mm -hmm. And if I could throw something out for your students, for your listeners. Please. Being a defense counsel is one of the most life-changing experiences that I've had. Why do you say that? Well, so not just as an attorney, but as a person, frankly, there's, uh, to a certain degree, this has an element of humanity that's often missing. And being a defense counsel, you see, obviously, the other side of things. You are interacting with a human being whose life is changing. And there's really something incredible about being on that side. And it really changes the way that you approach the practice of law. And frankly, it's, it's made me a better government attorney, right? Right now, I represent the United States. I'm on the other side of the aisle. And the way I practice is informed differently. I have a better kind of depth of appreciation when I read a cold record, I understand far better what's happening. It reminds me a little bit of what my the court of appeals judge that I clerked for always said. So he only hired people with district court experience. And part of that decision was, I want to make sure that I have people who, when they read a trial court record, have been the ones deciding and helping decide trial court records, right? The ability to see what the other side is saying is basically a superpower for the law. Like I, no matter how you can do that, if you can find a way to get some experience on the other side or in the other piece of the practice, it's always, it's just huge. That's- right. And it's, it's an unfortunate syndrome. I think sometimes we can become so tribalistic about our practice area that folks are, I, I was counseled, hey, be careful what you do as far as your internships, as far as your actual jobs, because once you get the stink of a defense counsel or the stink of a prosecutor, the other side's not going to want you. And mm-hmm. thankfully in the military, obviously that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Sure. And that's obviously one difference between practicing law in the military and practicing in private practice. Are there other big differences that you found? I mean, obviously you went straight into the JAG Corps straight uh, after your clerkships, but are there other differences between those two practices? Yeah, so take everything I I say with a grain of salt because obviously I've spent limited time on the civilian side. I can only base it on what I've heard from friends and colleagues. But 
the responsibilities shouldered, I think there's a drastic difference. And that can be both a pro and a con. I mean, just this last year, and I realize that I'm incredibly blessed to be able to say this, I argued three times in the highest court in the military. I don't think, in fact, I'm confident that I would not have had this breadth of exposure had I not mm -hmm. gone the route that I have. And I realize it's not the Supreme Court, but that's like arguing three times at the Supreme Court in a single year. And in terms of the kinds of cases you argue, you've talked a little bit about the kinds of work you do, but in terms of the kinds of cases you argue, are they similar in some ways to a typical sort of federal court of appeal type argument? Or are there distinct differences because you're arguing in front of a, a military court? There are differences in the vernacular. In any given case, we're going to be using terms that you're just not going to hear in the civilian world. But most of the issues, the, the vast majority of the issues are the same. Most appellate work, frankly, is the same. It's just you're having different conversations about different areas of the law, right? right. But I mean, so much of, of my practice is heavy on the constitutional side. A lot of statutory interpretation. What does the Constitution say? What does the statute say? What does the precedent say? So this is very much an appellate discussion where we're just using language and confronting fact patterns that certainly may not bear out in the civilian world. And are there, are there also unique challenges to practicing law as a military officer? Yeah. So first goes to exactly what you just said. You are a military officer and you're an attorney. And those two responsibilities, those two hats are just, they're different by their very nature. It's not to say that they're, they're inconsistent with one another, but mm -hmm. the skills required to be a good officer are not the same skills required to be a good attorney. And in order to succeed in the military, you got to be both. And there's varying degrees of emphasis across the branches, it's just, just because every, every branch is different. Every branch has right. its own culture. For example, in the Marine Corps, I mean, you are very much a Marine officer first. You, you are a rifleman first. My point is that there are different expectations than, than you might confront as an attorney, just in the, in the civilian world. What's the process for doing what you've been doing the last few years? Yeah, so it varies by branch, but generally the, the process is as follows. You put together your application package, you write your standard kind of personal statement, you get your letters of recommendation, and you submit. And then there's also an interview aspect to it. The, we call it the, the structured interview in the Navy. And you sit down with two officers, one more senior than the other, and you'll go through a series of questions. And these are questions that are intelligently designed. And I obviously can't reveal what the questions sure, are, sure. but the, the point is to understand who you are, what, what type of person you are, what type of leader you can become. And again, is what I was touching on about the role of an officer. What is your capacity to lead? What is your capacity to navigate difficult situations? And certainly these skills can be useful to somebody who's just going to be an attorney generally, but they're incredibly, right. they're not just valued, they are mandated in order to be a successful officer. So that's part of the selection process that bears heavily on kind of who gets then, quote, professionally recommended. So you get picked up after the interview and the package submission. And then you go through all of the commissioning process. 
which is you know medical screenings and all of that. Once you officially kind of are in, you sign on the dotted line. Then after law school, you go to your respective officer school, which is a period of instruction where you learn how to be in the military, how to be an officer. And once you've completed that, then go in the Navy to the Naval Justice School, which is basically the Navy's mini version of law school. So you go again for more schooling. It's a little weird, the feeling after having graduated, you're a lawyer, and then you're doing push-ups and folks are yelling at you. You're swabbing the deck and you're cleaning things. It's, it's different. It is not a traditional path, but I think it, it brings with it an incredible and a fleeting sense of humility that from, from our profession generally, mm-hmm. that you know it's not about your credentials. It's not about the fancy things that you get to hang on the wall. Everybody's the same and you're a part of a team that at the end of the day, there's going to be a job and you got to get that job done. And I think that sense of humility has, has helped me in my appellate practice because one of the most wonderful things, and I'm going to nerd out for a little bit, I, I think about Please. <laughs> appellate practice is that it's not about it's not about rhetoric. It's about reasoning, right? That's the beauty of the judicial branch. Its lifeblood is its reasoning, right? The, the judges publish an opinion and then it, it lives or dies on how well-reasoned it is. And the humility aspect that comes in is realizing that you're not going to come up with the brilliant, magnificent answer. It's not going to be, you know, what does this lawyer think? They've just absolutely moved all of us. That's just, this has got to be the right answer. But it's really sitting with the law and figuring out what is the the correct answer, right? What does the law compel? Mm -hmm. It's not about who's smarter than the other person. It's about what the right answer is, what the law necessitates. And, you know, if I should bring it full circle, those times where I was mopping after law school, those times where I was doing things that I never thought I would do as a barred attorney, um, but just trying to get to the end and, you know, get, get the mission done, have helped me in approaching the law with a sense of humility that it's not about me. It's not about the fancy credentials, right? It's about doing the work that's necessary. That's great. And I guess besides being able to mop the deck, are there certain sort of skills or personality types that you think really fit well in the kind of work you do? At the forefront, the number one most important thing is you've got to be a team player. Just full stop. If you don't have the capacity to be on a team, you are going to have a very, very hard time having a successful career in the military. We are Mm -hmm. all about teamwork, right? It's about the men and women to your left and right. It's about your shipmates. It's about your sailors. It's about making sure, you know, the the team succeeds. So often in the legal profession, we can be uh, a little bit cannibalistic. Whoever's on Mm -hmm. the top, Whoever's got the top of the class, what's your GPA? What's your class rank? What's your LSAT? None of that matters in the military. And again, it's, it's wonderfully humbling because again, you know, nobody cares where you went to school. It's about what kind of person are you? Are, are you the kind of person who I'm going to stand beside? I'm going to trust. I'm going to want to be on a team with. I know is going to have my back at the end of the day and has the integrity to make the right call when nobody else is looking. That's what really matters. Are there 
classes you can take in law school? Are there things you should do that will give you a leg up in the world that you practice? So yes, but maybe not for the reasons that you would think, right? It's not about a class on military law. It's not about taking a class that you get to watch a few good men and talk about what, you know, whether or not you need him on that wall. But it's it's about getting training in how to be a lawyer. So much of law school is kind of, let's say, a bit uh, esoteric, right? I mean, mm-hmm. some classes, mm-hmm. we could just throw all the textbooks in the middle of the floor, burn them. Let's do it allegory of the cave style and talk about the shadows, right? I mean, I would, be sh- I would not be surprised if that were an actual class. But... <laughs> You have to make a, a conscious choice to try and take classes that are going to help you prepare, right? There are places where you can graduate law school having never taken constitutional law. I think that is just a disservice right. to students, right? Uh, taking federal courts, taking you know classes that prepare you to think and act as an attorney, right? Because so much of it is just an mm-hmm. intellectual process. You're not going to come out knowing all of the answers. And I always say this to my colleagues and you know s- subordinates alike. If anyone just gives you an answer off the cuff, you should probably question the answer, right? So much of what we do is about figuring out the right answer. And sure, you know, after a certain amount of time, you can be sufficiently informed that you've got a really good idea of exactly the right answer off the top of your head. But again, it's about going back. It's about checking the references, check the statute, read the constitution again, read the cases, right? And get to the right answer. I mean, that's what I do with my students all the time. Half of the battle is teaching them what is the question that we should even be asking, right? Once you get what the question is, then the question is, well, what are the relevant sources that help me answer that question? And if you can't do those two foundational things, you have no place opining at all. And, And that's what I meant before about the humility aspect, right? A lot of times I think, and frankly, I was probably under this, this misconception myself, it's about who can think of the best answer, right? Who who's the most compelling person in the room? But it's but it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about the process. It's about getting to the right answer. And I will tell you know new counsel and old counsel alike in my office. You know, what is what's your authority? That sounds fantastic, but give me a case because we're not going to move. The, the intermediate appellate court. We're not going to move the CAF, our highest court. We're not going to move them by the sheer force of will. We're going to move them by saying, look, this has been answered. Here is what the precedent says. Or look, here's what the plain text of the statute, the, the plain reading of, of whatever governing regulation, constitutional provision, whatever it is, right? We're going to move them by giving them what they need, by engaging in the necessary analytical approach we're not going to win because we just say something that sounds great. That's funny. One of the things that I often tell my students when they take a position, but they don't cite to any authority is I look at them and I say, you and what army? <laughs> and now I feel like when I interview you, that has a, a new valence that will really work. But I think it's really important. So I want to turn to talking a little bit about clerkships, if that's okay. So you've had two clerkships already and uh, a third one coming on the way. So can you just tell me a little bit about what excited you to go clerk? And and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the different experiences you've had. Yeah. So clerking, in my humble perspective, is just 
one of the best jobs in our field. I started my career with you know, Chief Justice Heck down at the Texas Supreme Court. I was then with uh, Judge Olson, Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, to people who have had immeasurable impact on the way I approach the law, the way I think about the law, just how to disagree without being disagreeable, and how to really put in the work necessary. They've just inspired me in ways that I, I simply can't capture. So beyond that, and that's a lot, yeah, uh, right. you get to see how the sausage is made, which is just incredibly valuable from, from an advocate's standpoint. It's one thing to write a brief and say, I think this is quite compelling. I'm sure this will move the court to the correct solution. And it's another thing to understand right, how judges take the case after argument and then conference it with their colleagues and some of the internal debates that occur between chambers. Right, These are all touch points that it's an incredible honor to be exposed to, and that, again, deepen the way you approach practice. And in terms of writing, what did you learn from your clerkship? It is all about precision. Every judge I've ever worked for, if there is a word on the page, there's thought behind that. And I take that and try to apply it to my practice as you know, as an advocate, if I say something, if there's a comma, there's a reason. Nothing is done just off the cuff. And that sense of precision, that sense of just uh, deliberate approach to the law, I think is incredibly beneficial for an advocate. And it's a, sure, you can develop that anywhere, you know, a fantastic law firm or elsewhere. But the point is, you are you really get thrown into the fire uh, mm-hmm. by learning it on the side of the judiciary with the judge. Because again, mm-hmm. yes, does an opinion impact just this case? Certainly, it's, it's the disposition for that case. But an opinion carries with it far broader consequence than an advocate might expect in the context of their brief, right? You are representing your client in right. your case, you're making arguments on behalf of your client in your case. But when a judge writes, they know that their opinion is going to be cited in all other cases. And that carries with it a need for precision that advocates, I don't think, immediately shoulder. And it's just incredibly beneficial. Yeah, I think people forget that judges make law. That's part of our common law system. You can be a strict purposivist or a strict originalist Judges make law when they apply established law and established sources of law to new sets of facts. And that law is then going to be cited back to them in the future. And that is a huge challenge to hold on your shoulders as a brand new lawyer coming into clerk. Yeah. And, uh, and the way I would put it is that you know every case is bigger than just that case, right? That case requires an honest engagement with the law. What is the right answer? And uh, that's not to say that cases must be answered with an eye to future cases and figuring out what the right answer in those cases is not yet presented. No. But the reality is they have broad consequence, right? Mm -hmm. When weighing as a judge or a panel weighs on the rights of the parties before them, it's going to have broad implication. And that weight, the weight of that responsibility, I think, uh, hits home in a different way than the weight of responsibility of representing one's client. The mm-hmm. two are certainly incredibly important, but again, it, it encourages a sense of deliberate precision that I think is just I- invaluable. 
So you started clerking on the Texas Supreme Court, as you said, for the chief justice. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like to clerk on uh, state's highest court and specifically on the Texas Supreme Court? Oh, gosh, it was incredible. Just absolutely. I could not have uh, been given the opportunity to start my career in a better way. My judge is just the model of hard work. The, the chief, he would read just absolutely everything that came through the court. I mean, he put in the hours. There is, a, there is nobody that works harder than that man. And so much of that inspired me and my work ethic that I've tried to kind of to, to, to bring the level that I saw him bring to everything. So that was incredible from a mentorship standpoint. The court itself, incredible court. I mean, one of the aspects that I didn't expect of clerking was interacting with the other justices. I mean, mm -hmm. there were times where I would get the opportunity to just sit down and have a conversation with one of the other justices and get to know them a little bit more than my wise be possible, even though they weren't my boss. Certainly your boss serves as a mentor of sorts, but also the other members of the court. Right. And I think on the Texas Supreme Court, you also get the opportunity to go to conference. Is that true? That's right. In fact, my first day, my first day, if I could tell a story, Please. at the Supreme Court of Texas was in conference. And I had just graduated from law school. I had just taken the bar and didn't have my results back. I was terrified, as I think every law student is. And first day was in conference. And obviously, I won't say what happened in conference, but I'm sitting there with zero clue of really what's happening around me. I understand it's incredibly important. Uh, I understand I am going to need to figure it out, but just with, with very little understanding of kind of what is happening around me. Being thrown into the sea and you're afloat and you're trying to figure out where the heck you are and stay above the surface. But yes, Supreme Court of Texas, we participate in conference and it's an amazing, amazing opportunity that, as you mentioned, virtually no one does that. It was wonderful because we not only kind of engage with our justice in chambers, but during right. conference with the others. It's one thing to be able to advocate to your respective justice. It's, it's quite another to advocate to the entire court in a private setting. I mean, it's just, it's wild, it's wonderful, and it's an incredible honor and responsibility to kind of serve the people of Texas in that regard. So it was just, it was fantastic. Yeah, I think that's such an such a incredible opportunity for a young lawyer. Being a law clerk is kind of like being a judge's brain or adjacent to a judge's brain for a year, but to also be able to be part of the capital B brain of the whole court and what persuades different judges is such a unique opportunity. I mean, the closest I ever got was on the Second Circuit. They took a very different approach, which is they did not talk about cases at all not by phone. The only time they talked about cases was in one of two ways. They talked about it right after oral argument, or they talked about it in writing by fax. <laughs> okay. And so I spent a lot of my year on the Second Circuit writing and responding to written correspondence by fax, a totally different medium, a totally different genre. And I think being able to see it live would have been really special. Yeah. And, and you know, as I'm sure you found with that experience, right? It, it gives you insight, this sense of kind of what the dynamic between chambers actually is, how the judges come to decide the case that just changes the way you practice law. So as a young mm -hmm. attorney, 
to have your formative years be in that environment. I think it's an incredible honor. It's an incredible blessing. And it's just, it's just a wonderful opportunity that is unmatched. Sure. And, and turning to that, right, the challenge, of course, to clerking is getting a clerkship. So you have, you've now secured three different clerkships. Can you talk a little bit about not the nuts and bolts of applying, but some of the tips and tricks you've found to be successful in that process? Sure. So one of the most important aspects, I believe, about getting a clerkship and just being a good clerk is researching and writing. And I know that sounds like a platitude, right? That's what everybody knows. But really spending time trying to develop your writing, putting the work in. There are so many people. In fact, I did it myself initially, where it's the writing sample is almost like an afterthought. I mean, that's such an incredible aspect of your application because it's, it's arguably the only demonstration of your writing ability that you're going to put before the judge. Um, so taking the time during law school, and I, I frankly didn't do enough of this, to flex those muscles, to build that muscle memory, to build that repository of samples that you can choose from when putting together your applications. Because when you realize you need it, it is too late, Right. If you don't think you have a good writing sample at the time you're putting together your applications, uh, you've missed the boat for that cycle. The challenge is there are more people that want to clerk than can. Uh, That's just the reality. Chambers can get, I mean, federal chambers can get over a thousand applications every cycle. Do you have any thoughts on A, how to get your application read and B, just how to find a clerkship in that world? Uh, So I have a couple of thoughts. First, Be okay with rejection. A lot of people in our world are so used to being successful that any semblance of rejection is a harder blow than it needs to be. Somebody like me who spent most of their life just, you know, getting rejected left and right, it's it's (laughs) it's it's second nature for me. I always say, you know, it's, it's easy to stand tall when you do so on a whole the big old pile of, of rejections, right? But that, I think, psychologically is really important for somebody engaging the process, right? Just be ready to be told no. Uh, and it stinks. It's emotionally taxing. It's physically taxing to just do the darn interviews. Mm-hmm. When I was doing them, we weren't in the age of COVID. So I was flying around on my own dime, which, you know, there wasn't, I didn't have many dimes, let me just say. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And doing these interviews, and it was tiring. So I think be willing to put in the work, and you know, if it doesn't work out, be okay with that and be ready to forge ahead. I think that's one aspect. Second thing is being yourself. And I, I realize this might also sound like perhaps uh, useless generalized advice, but I personally, spent a lot of my initial time trying to be who I thought somebody else wanted me to be, the employer, the judge, whatever it was when I was going through the application process. And I wasn't initially very successful. Only when I realized, look, you know, I, I can only be myself and, you know, sure, that's palatable by some, but at the end of the day, I am who I am. And, you know, this is how I genuinely kind of approach the law. This is the lens through which I approach life. Um, that is compelling, right? Mm-hmm. And the judges are awash with qualified applicants. I mean, there's just, as you, as you mentioned, there's, there's a lot. 
So at the end of the day, so much of the process is designed to find somebody who they think would suit their chambers, who they're willing to kind of put in those long hours beside. Because if if you can't be a part of that tight-knit team, right, even if you're just the most brilliant person in the world, which has never been a burden that I've had to carry, right, uh, <laughs> it, if you are difficult to work with, right, you're not going to help. And if you are able to land that clerkship, any advice on how to be successful? You're there because you're to do a job. You're not there because anyone thinks that you're the judge or even close to being the judge. You're there to help your judge do a job. And you're there to, to make their life better, frankly. I think something that young lawyers often try to do is, we, you know, and I did it myself, is we do things that we think will reflect well on us. But if anything, especially that I've learned in the Navy, it ain't about you, right? Full stop. It's not about you. It's about the mission. And if no one ever knows your name, but you did the mission, that's a good day. That's probably the best day, right? Because you did your job and you did it well. So at the end of the day, I think something that's, that's critical, mm -hmm. that's often lost. And when I hear you'll be talking to clerks from various quirks and like, oh yeah, you know, that that, that one's my opinion, right? That's, that's a dangerous sentiment. And certainly some judges give their clerks leeway to say what you know, opinions that they were involved with in drafting and such. But nothing is yours, right? You don't wear the robe. You are there to do a job. And that job, that mission is supporting your judge. And their mission is getting the right answer. And as long as you approach it, I think with that sense of humility, Right. That again, if no right. one ever knows your name, it does not matter. As long as you got the right answer, I think that not only benefits the you as a clerk, you as an attorney, but your judge. Because again, it's frankly not about them either. It's about making sure we protect the the integrity of our practice and the rule of law. And if you always come to an answer, I believe that that you are thrilled about. Right. You might be doing something wrong. So before you leave, Josh, I want to ask you a little bit about how you balance your profession and your personal family life. I know you have two small kids at home, just like me. And I'm curious, as we're all figuring this out, if you have any lessons from your experiences. Yeah. So that's uh, a great question. And I would say the truth is, what's my secret to the balance is that I haven't figured out the secret to the balance I'll tell you a little story and maybe sure, my story please. will help folks, if anything, not give them an answer, but uh, help them avoid maybe some of the mistakes I've made. I would say that much of my journey has been maybe ironically, a little bit ironically, been spent trying to make up for something in the past. I was just talking to my wife the other night about this in anticipation of this talk, and it hit me that I've, I've been honestly going nonstop, literally with, with no vacations. Heck, I didn't even take a honeymoon, much to the, the woe of my wife, for the last right. decade. And I started law school in 2011, and having not matriculated to what was my first choice, I told myself and my then fiance that I would work around the clock to, quote, make up for what hadn't played out the way I wanted. I put in the hours, I put in a lot of work, and by the grace of God or an administrative error, which it's probably both, I transferred to Harvard. And meanwhile, my mom became pretty ill and I had her move in with me and my then fiance 
so that I could take care of her. And this made it a little bit tough to focus on school. And frankly, my academics suffered. And at one point, Harvard actually encouraged me. They called me in, sat me down, and encouraged me to take a leave of absence. And I, uh, a little bit too confidently, declined. And I told myself, hey, I'm, I'm going to lose out on everything that I've been planning on with the Navy, beyond everything that I've been working for. So I kept pushing in order to make up for what I thought was a less than ideal start to my legal career and to make use of the opportunities that had been put in front of me, all, mm-hmm. all the while really ignoring a lot of the damage that it was doing to myself and to, to my family. Sure. And once I became an attorney, I then continued to spend countless hours in my free time trying to make up for academic opportunities that I felt I had missed out on during law school. I I dedicated almost every free moment I had to pursuing a fellowship or pursuing some sort of academic opportunity that would put me in a position where I felt like I actually deserved to say I graduated from Harvard because I didn't. I didn't feel like I had earned it. And it's not lost on me that there's some some perverse irony in constantly setting your sights on making up for something in the past, because I'm now reflecting on the past decade, trying to make up for the time that I've taken for my family over the course mm-hmm. of that decade in an attempt to make sure that it wasn't for nothing. And this has pushed me, again, perversely to work harder to make sure that at some point, hopefully soon, I could tell them, I can look at my wife, I can look at my daughters and say, we did it. But the thing is, and this sounds like a platitude, but it's not, every day on this earth is a gift. And I I think just as a human, I I don't spend enough time realizing that. While I was stationed in San Diego, I actually lost uh, my closest shipmate on station. We went to training together. We were stationed together, first duty station. And he too had gone through a season, uh, a long season with the mentality that I just need to do this one next thing. And then I I can focus on on the other important stuff. And the right. next thing you know, I was carrying his ashes on a plane to Arlington. Hmm. And that was a wake-up call for me. So why am I telling you and presumably the whole world, the internet, <laughs> in memoriam for, uh, forever, this story? Is it important to work hard? Absolutely. Heck, any success that I've enjoyed has been the product of the fact that I, I may not be the smartest person in the world, but I will outwork anyone, if, if given the, the, uh, the opportunity, if given the chance. Mm-hmm. But what I failed to account for and what I would implore anybody still listening to consider is that uh, it, it's important to consciously force yourself or try to draw boundaries when you can between work and life because the work will always be there. The life might not. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. a risk that eventually what you practice either becomes unsustainable or unforgettable and not in the good way. And there's always going to be one reason or another to make up for something in the past. I've spent the last decade of my life doing that. I know it way too well. So if you're always looking back, you may eventually forget where you're trying to go in the first place, I think is my point. Again, that was Lieutenant Joshua Fiveson, Senior Appellate Counsel at the Navy JAG Corps. I want to thank Josh for being on the podcast and for sharing his candid advice and insights on the life of a military lawyer, state and federal court clerkships, and how to maintain balance while also working hard as an attorney. 
I learned a lot from his story, and I hope you did as well. As always, if you enjoyed or learned something from this episode and haven't yet subscribed, please do at howilawyer.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you can, it would mean a lot to me if you can leave a review on the Apple iTunes store, even if you're not listening through the Apple Podcasts app. Thanks once again to Josh. Thanks for listening and have a great week.